Good evening, Cyclones everywhere, and welcome to the Iowa Stater Virtual Book Club event. My name is Matt Van Winkle with the ISU Alumni Association, and I'm joined this evening by the editor of Iowa State Magazine, Malia Licht. Hi, Malia. How are you tonight? Hi, I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, good to see you. And you're in the Alumni Center right now. I can see all of the uh, old Iowa Stater and Visions magazines behind you. Oh, that's right. I'm in my cozy, uh, my cozy uh, fake book bookshelves by me. They're not real. It's okay. <laughs> well, go ahead and let us know where you're watching from tonight. Uh, we see a lot of you watching. Let us know in that chat where you're watching from tonight, Malia. We know we know Trent's watching from New York, I believe. We'll, we'll have him on here in a sec. Uh, we're both here in Iowa. But yeah, let us know. We have Cyclones everywhere watching with us tonight. Yeah. We also, throughout tonight's event, we encourage you to type in any questions or comments that you may have. Yeah, absolutely. We know you'll have questions for Trent. We have questions for Trent. We'll get to that in a second. But at the end of tonight, we'll be picking one of you who puts a comment in the chat uh, to receive an ISU prize pack. So go ahead and put those comments in. We'll run that prize uh, drawing at the end of the show here today. But with that, we'd like to introduce the author of our book club selection, Trent Presler, a 1998 alum from Iowa State. He is CEO of Bedell Sellers in New York, founder of Presler Woodshop, and a visiting professor of practice at Cornell University. Trent's memoir, Little and Often, was named a USA Today Best Book of the Year, and Trent has also served on the Alumni Association Board of Directors. So let's bring him in here now, Malia. Trent Presler, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi. So welcome, Trent. Thanks. Yeah. Great to see you. It's uh, nice to see friendly faces. I've known you guys for quite a long time now, it's, it, it seems. Right. <laughs> well, last time I spoke to you was was right as the book was coming out, um, I believe. Yeah. Was it two years ago now? Two years ago, yeah. It's <clears throat> amazing. Almost exactly, yeah. It was April, May of, of um, 2021. It was during COVID, so, you know, everything's yeah. a bit blurry. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and we appreciate your continued connection with Iowa State University and the Alumni Association, Trent, dating back to your service on our board of directors. And we're just so excited to um, connect others with you and your work tonight. Um, so how tonight will work is Matt and I have some questions for you. We'll get some discussion going, and then we'll be adding in comments and questions that we receive from our friends in the chat. So thanks to those of you who are sharing where you're from. Please keep posting those throughout, and, and we'll share those as those come in. Um, but to get us started for tonight, Trent, I'd just like to invite you to tell us a little bit about Little and Often. And yeah, well, um, it's such a thrill to be here and to talk about my book um, with Iowa Staters. I came back to campus in, um, gosh, I think that was in uh, summer of 2021, and I gave a lecture um, in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union. And um, the book really, um, it chronicles the story of how I built a wooden canoe with my father's tools. And um, my father was a roughneck kind of cattle rancher in South Dakota, and I, um, <clears throat> he and I were not that close. I lived in New York City and lived in Long Island and worked in the wine business in New York for many years. And um, when he died, I, I, I inherited his tools and his toolbox, which was a very humble kind of rancher's setup. And, and he was not a boat builder by any stretch, but I used his tools to build that canoe you see right there on that image. Um, <laughs> uh, I was living on the ocean at the time on Long Island and just sort of decided, you know what, I want to build something with his tools, both to kind of get to know him better after his death and to honor him and to, you know, I actually lived right on the ocean and thought maybe it'd be cool to have a boat. So 
so that's what I did. And then um, I wrote this book uh, <clears throat> kind of after, um, it's funny, you write a book and it and the way the whole publishing process unfolds, um, most of the story took place in 2014 and 2015. And so then I wrote the book in, in like 2019 to 2021. And now here we are, it's 2023 and I'm still talking about it. So um, it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving, I would say in many ways. <clears throat> well, I would imagine, I mean, so going through all of that so, such a long time ago um, and even recalling in the book, you know, um, these memories, these experiences you went through with your father and your family, was it a challenge for you to to kind of pull back those memories to to put those into a book? I mean, I know, and this was your very first book that you published, right? Yeah, my first book. Uh, I always said. I mean, I always said that building the canoe was the hardest thing I'd ever done until I wrote the book, and then building, <laughs> writing the book was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Um, yeah, it it was really hard, and and in fact, um, you know, I was too close to the story to really know what parts were critical that needed to be included, and which parts were kind of maybe not necessary. And so, my, I had a really great editor at Harper Collins. His name is Mauro Depreta, and he worked on some pretty big big books, including um, Marley and me. And he, I think he had a really good idea of, um, he said, just put everything down on the page and let me decide like what we keep and what we don't. And, and um, you know, the process of writing a memoir is, um, you're not just like regurgitating your whole life story, because if you do that, it's going to be 2000 pages long. And, you know, 95% of life is like drinking coffee and complaining about traffic. Um, and it's stuff that people don't want to spend their time reading. <laughs> so you have to decide very early on, like, what is the story you're going to tell? Yeah. And you have to kind of like find that golden thread that goes throughout your life and, and pull out the parts of your life that support the story that you want to tell. So, <clears throat> you know, I wanted to tell a story of, of kind of redemption and how, um, you know, I healed myself and, and through the mourning process of working with my father's tools to build this canoe. So you know, sometimes friends are like, well, I wasn't in the book or this if part of your life wasn't in the book. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that wasn't in the book because um, you only got like 250 pages to kind of yeah. say something that matters. So. Well, Iowa State made it in a few times. I did hear that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. We love the critical shout out. part at a critical <laughs> juncture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think um, that common thread of the father and son relationship, you've just woven it through your life and through the book so beautifully. We were able to make those connections. And it's, you know, that of a parent and child is a relationship we've all experienced in, in some way. And so I think that's one of the things that makes your book so relatable. And I, I wondered, as you were putting it together, was there anything in your mind that you hoped people would take away from that book, either, you know, something that they would feel, something they would learn as a result of that book, or, um, you know, something that they would do after they put it down, kind of what, yeah. what did you want people to, to take away? Well, um, you know, I hope that people would find their own canoe. So I know that everyone's not going to build a canoe, but maybe, maybe you're going to clean out the garage, you know, or maybe you're going to call your mother. Um, yeah. Or maybe you'll ask for a raise or just I felt like, mm -hmm. I wanted people to to kind of sense that it's not too late to make a change in your life. And when this all happened, I was 37. And mm -hmm. by the time the book came out, I was, you know, like in my early 40s. And um, 
So I think my greatest hope was that people would just maybe find some hope and inspiration in the story and in my story. And, um, you know, it was interesting when I first, my, my agent first sold the book to our publisher. Um, uh, he sent the proposal and we got an email back from the executive editor of HarperCollins right away. And he said, I have to, I have to meet Trent. And, and he had an office in the World Trade Center and it was this whole, it was this whole surreal moment. And, you know, and I hadn't published anything before, but I walk in and, and um, he, uh, he said, I never say this, but um, I have to publish your book because I kind of read your proposal like over lunch while I was eating my salad. And I realized that this is a story that anyone can relate to. He said, you know, he, he grew up in Queens and he's the head of HarperCollins. So in theory, <clears throat> he and I had nothing in common. Right. You know, but he said he, his dad was a mechanic, an auto mechanic in Queens, and he never felt like he lived up to his dad's expectations. Mm -hmm. And he said he got very emotional reading just the proposal for the book. And he felt like mm -hmm. it was a, a story that's like very specific to me, but had um, very broad and kind of like relatable themes. So hopefully people felt that. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even if it's something small that you pick out, so I'll just share a quick story with you. My, my dad passed away in December oh, and sorry. yeah. And um, so he, when he passed away, he was kind of a handyman. He wasn't a woodworker, like maybe you and your dad, you know, work with tools, but he, you know, he could see when, you know, when I left, went on my own, he, he gave me tools. He bought me some tools because he knew I didn't have any. Mm -hmm. And um, th just this past month I bought, I uh, built my daughter a playset. Not nothing like you did from scratch that came with in, with instructions, but I used those tools. And I was as I was listening to your book, I was building this playset, and all these themes kept coming back to me. So it was very relatable in that sense. Not not quite as literal as yours, but it was very. Uh, there was some yeah. sort of meaning there. I thought so. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, we can all build a life, and we all build. <clears throat> we create our own home sweet home, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're building a playset or a gym or or a boat or whatever. Sure. But, yeah. Um, and uh it's a beautiful thing and it's you know it's one of the few ways i think that in this world that we kind of can feel like we have some measure of control over what's going on <laughs> yeah. most things are totally out of our control and right um <clears throat> you know we get kind of buffeted on a day-to-day -day basis by life and work and money and everything but you know if you can put together something and make something with your yes. hand yeah it gives yeah. you a sense that yeah okay i stopped the chaos of the for a few minutes <laughs> and I followed your little and often approach I worked on it like two hours a day for like two weeks and finally got it done <laughs> yeah well um, not a year not a year like you did with the boat but <laughs> it does work we did have a good question in the in the chat I'll just see it now did you really only take the canoe out one time or you took it out a couple times right oh one oh um well in the course of where the book was written yes um mm -hmm. In the years since then, I used it just a few more times, but I didn't use it a whole lot. Um, <clears throat> you know, we sort of had this vision at the very beginning of starting to write this book, working with my editor, that we wanted it to end with me on the water. <clears throat> so kind of like in a movie when you fade to black, we thought we imagined that I would go through this year journey of building it and then finally finish it and then finally get to paddle it. And then it's like you have like the drone shot of the camera, like fading off into the universe and and um, fading to black. So, you know, in an earlier draft of the book, I had sort of um, 
I paddled the canoe earlier in the book and then my editor kind of felt like it was anticlimactic that you really wanted that scene to be to be kind of the end and and, and the moment so um I did use it after that in the in subsequent years since then but not a whole lot um it um you know it really was just that one time and then I used it I wrote about it in the afterward of the book that I used it to scatter um the ashes of caper my dog when he died um and then kind of just hung it up in the rafters and mm -hmm. retired it the other thing about it is it's like it's way too big to use on my own <laughs> like a 20-foot canoe so I can't <laughs> lift it on my own it weighs like 300 pounds and oh so like it's not like I could just get home from work and like pop out in the canoe and have a nice little paddle on my own so it kind of like I put it up in the rafters and then it just it was convenient to just let it sit there <laughs> sure Trent, we've got a couple comments and questions um, really about home and this idea of home. And one of the things you talked about was that everyone can build a home. Um, we've got one question here. Um, throughout the book, you refer to your parents' home as their house, but you never called it your home. For you, did it ever become home? Mm. Wow. <clears throat> um, that's, a, that's a really great question. And, and that's, that's from Jeff Johnson. Oh, hey, Jeff. Um, great question asker. That's a great question. You know, um, I never really did feel like it was home in South Dakota in the sense that it was um, it was a place that I left and a place that I never intended to come back to. And when I did come back there, it was under kind of, you know, these very sad circumstances. And um, <clears throat> and I always had this inclination that I had to build my own home and that it um, was kind of like I think it's maybe some of my dad's stubbornness where I I always felt like I'm not going to call their house a home because I have to make my own home um, because that's what they did to raise their family and they built their home and and um, so now I refer to my home <laughs> where I, I finally bought a house um, this is my home but um, that's a tough question uh, did it ever become home Oh gosh, probably not. I think it was it was tormented and tortured in so many ways with my family life that it was sort of a transient place. And and um, yeah, gosh, Jeff, I'm gonna have to think about that after this after this is over. <laughs> One question that that also leads into: um, some folks are wondering how your mom is doing, and um, you know if they're if readers are like me, you get connected with. With folks, you painted such a vivid and wonderful, um, you know, picture yeah. and, and connection with your mom, and so just wanted to to check in and see how she was doing. She's doing great. Um, yeah, we're very close, and I saw her um, this past fall. She came out to New York again with some other family members, and um, we had a nice time. And she's doing good. Like she's she makes her quilts, um, you know. And I realized kind of after finishing the book that how much like her quilting obsession also is part of my DNA. <laughs> and that it wasn't just dad's handiness of, of working on the ranch that I should have given my mom more credit in the book because she makes the most beautiful quilts and she's she makes like, I don't know, three or four quilts a year. And um, so, and I came to, I went to South Dakota in July of last year and saw, she works at this quilt shop um, and there were just like hundreds of quilts on the walls and um, anyway, she's doing really great and, um, she's done quite a bit of travel 
um, since dad passed away, she <clears throat> goes to Florida quite often. And um, yeah, yeah, she's doing well. <clears throat> I'm just curious too, for those who, who are watching, um, I listened actually to the audio book that was uh, Matt Bomer did that, right? Yeah. Uh, did a wonderful job. Uh, really, yeah. really uh, put voices to, to these people um, really made them come to life too. I'm, I'm just curious if people want to put in the chat, if they list, read the book, if they listened to the audio book um, on audible, but it was, it was fun to listen to. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have asked me like why I didn't read the book myself and um, first of all, like no one, I don't think anyone likes, loves the sound of their own voice. Even like people on NPR will, will say <laughs> in interviews that uh, I heard Ari Shapiro talk recently on his book tour that he doesn't even like his own voice. And he's got a show on <laughs> morning edition on NPR. So um, I kind of felt like from the very beginning that I wanted to, um, I wanted to have a trained voice actor do the reading. And uh, Matt is a mutual, we have a mutual friend that kind of connected us and and I thought, okay, well, yeah, an actor who's done some big movies, that would be kind of cool. And and he read the book and he related to it so much because he grew up on a cattle ranch in Texas and his dad was a professional football player and and, and Matt didn't come out of the closet till much later in life too. And um, <clears throat> so he really gelled with the story right away and he wanted to read it. And um, we he recorded it in a studio in, in West Hollywood during COVID shutdown. So, you know, it was like, I don't even think anyone was really working. They they had to wear masks. And then he went in the st recording studio, the booth, and took his mask off. But um, I think he, he recorded the whole thing in five days. And um, we spoke quite a bit throughout that process. Um, he asked me some questions about my family and just other things like little nuances that maybe weren't in the book so he could kind of help him understand. But... Um, and then and then he struggled quite a bit with the ending with like the last five pages he couldn't stop crying so we had to we had to do the 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 recording over quite a few times till he could get through to the ending without losing it um like he had to stand up and walk and go you know drink some drink a pepsi or something and come back but um and then after that process then he flew to new york actually and we hung out at my house and um and uh, he, he saw the canoe and the places that were in the book as well. So he felt like he had a good full circle experience with it. The cliffhanger where uh, you were putting the, the fiberglass on the boat at the end and almost didn't finish left me like, oh, <laughs> I knew yeah. you finished it. But I was like, oh, my gosh, I felt so bad for you because you've gotten this far. And there you are. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was rough. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I really, I was, yeah, frankly, I yeah. was unsafe. Like I didn't, you know, I was using this saw and the wood was flying everywhere and I was getting these chemicals on my skin. Like I was really, really stupid about the whole thing. Um, but I think that was part of my desperation. Just like I really wanted to build this and I had to finish it. You know, like spoiler alert, it's on the cover, the back cover of the book. There's a picture of me with a canoe. So right. people know, you know, people know that I finished it, but they don't really know how I got across the finish line. So, yeah, the fiberglassing episode was quite, um, quite awful. And I'm still to this day, I'm very allergic to fiberglass and epoxy. Okay. So I was um, going to ask, I know you are still building. So do you hire yeah. somebody else to do that now or no? Well, you're just extra careful. I just wear like a Tyvek bodysuit now. So I cover every single surface and I tape, you know, gloves and I have someone else who works with me who um, 
tapes like everything shut, including like around my neck and my face. So I am like completely uh, protected. <laughs> but if I get like one little drop on my skin, it's an instant rash. It's mm. no good. Wow. That's amazing. Some, some, some very incredible stories told through this book. That's for sure. For sure. And we did receive one very specific canoe building question. So I wanted to make sure we've got to get at least one canoe builder question okay. in here tonight. Sure. Um, Ginny is asking, what are the special challenges of building a wooden boat for saltwater? Is it possible to do this using, quote, green materials? Ah, wow. Um, hmm. Well, you know, the fiberglass is resistant to corrosion, both from saltwater and freshwater. The main challenge isn't you don't necessarily, you don't use different materials to build a boat for the ocean, but you have different care, um, sort of aftercare procedures. So whenever you finish using the boat, um, you have to really hose it off good with fresh water or the salt can kind of, uh, if, it, if you let it sit on the surface, it'll eventually kind of corrode. Um, and green materials, um, yeah, I mean, there are wooden boats that are built without the use of fiberglass. Um, that can be very, very beautiful and durable in saltwater environments too. Often though, those are much bigger boats. Um, so with canoes, the, the wood can only be like a quarter inch, like a quarter inch thick. So you kind of have to have the fiberglass to make the whole thing waterproof. Um, but there are um, Adirondack guide boats and some row boats that use a little bit thicker wood um, that don't have fiberglass um, that are just the wood with like a sealant, a kind of a varnish coat. But um, uh, yeah, it's mostly about taking care of it. And you can't leave your, you know, you can't leave your fiberglass boat on the sun either. And it really kind of clouds the finish after, after a while. So you, um, they say usually like four to six coats of varnish for fresh water, but like six to 12 coats of varnish for, for uh, salt water. Interesting. So we did have some people actually that submitted some questions ahead of time. So I wanted to get to those before I forgot. Um, so Claire Hoover from Omaha uh, wanted to ask, but when I began reading, I thought Trent was driving to Faith, South Dakota. However, later research said Trent's parents lived in Yankton, having moved there when Trent would have been about 10. Was I incorrect in assuming the drive was from New York to Faith? Oh, no, no. The drive was to Faith. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, it's a convoluted story because my my dad and my sister are buried in Sioux Falls, um, where I moved after the ranch went bankrupt was Yankton. And the ranch was uh, somewhere between Meadow and Lemon. And around the time that I first road tripped out west, um, Thanksgiving of 2020, uh, 2014, um, my grandmother had also died and her funeral was up near Faith. So I had driven back for the funeral. That, that wasn't in the book because again, it's another thing where you have to decide what book you're writing. And if I put my grandmother's funeral on page one, people think, well, you're writing a book about your grandmother's funeral. <laughs> Is this a book about your grandma? And it's not. And unfortunately, so it was like I road tripped out to Faith and then uh, went to her funeral and then came back to Yankton and then um, left, went back to New York City and then came back out. And I actually went back to the homestead, to the family ranch um, out near Faith just to kind of see it before I went back to Yankton again. So it was a ton of driving, insane amount of driving. Um, I think it was like 24 hours nonstop, if, you know, not including sleeping time to get out there. Um, and there was the chapter where I arrived back at the ranch and, um, you know, and just showed its decay over time and showed how it kind of felt to me today 
in modern times compared to my memory of it uh, from whatever, 20, 25 years before. And then I got back in the car and headed down to Yankton. So, I mean, it's funny, you live in New York. I live in New York now and and to drive that amount of distance, you could go through like six or seven states. <laughs> but, you know, in South Dakota, you're like eight hours in and you're still in the same state. <laughs> it's a big state. That's really yeah. cool. I know I've driven across the country before. And yes, you. I was putting myself in your mind through that drive. It's easy yeah. to put it in a book. You say I drove from here to here. But until you've done it, yeah. <laughs> that's a long drive. <laughs> right. Yeah. Another example of writing where you kind of have to compress time, you know, you, it's yes. like, yeah, you know, and, and it happens in movies a lot where if you look, if you're watching a movie, like they cut to the next scene and then they focus where they want you to focus your attention is where the camera slows down and stops, um, you know, and then you've got a montage where you're driving on a highway to get to your next destination that you were, you know, maybe those details aren't as important. Mm-hmm. A lot of questions in the chat. Yeah, we're, we'll get to oh. we'll get to some more of these. Emily, <laughs> you want to read another one? Sure, sure. We're getting a, a couple questions coming in um, about your sister, and just wondered if you would like to talk a little bit um, about Lucy and um, your relationship with her. Lots of folks, you know, sharing their their own connections with siblings as well. Um, yeah. Very very special part of of your story for sure, Trent. Yeah, I mean, Lucinda, in many ways, uh, is the reason I wrote the book. And I always felt like, um, uh, you know, her illness was so debilitating and affecting for everyone in the family, not to mention her own suffering, that it affected, um, uh, it affected the whole trajectory of my life. Part of me always felt like I was living life for two of us because she couldn't live a full life because of her illness. And, um, you know, in some ways that can be, it can go two ways. Like it can be quite debilitating or it can be inspiring. And for me, it kind of made me feel like I have to keep working. I have to work hard because, because she couldn't, you know, and the family dynamic, you know, <clears throat> gosh, it's a special and unique thing that it's so hard to even um, describe but anytime I've ever met someone who had a sibling or a person in their family who um, had one sort of illness or disability or the other, uh, they really can understand how, um, you know, it affects the whole dynamic because you just want to go out. Let's say you want to go out and have just a nice dinner uh, at a restaurant and um, people stare or people say things if, if someone's in a wheelchair or Sometimes people can't totally control their own bodily functions in public places. And, and these are very uncomfortable things for people. Um, and then you get the dynamic, not just of like trying to make sure your sister is happy and healthy, but also dealing with like everyone else's reaction to your sister. <laughs> and, you know, there were really unpleasant episodes of bullying or people kind of making fun. And I think a lot of that is just people that don't understand or have empathy for anyone who's not like them. And um, I try to have some, um, oh, you know, over the years, I've tried to have some level of empathy toward those people and think, well, maybe they just don't know better. Um, and, you know, oftentimes there's that Mexican shaman in that book called The Four Tenants, where one of the principles of happiness is understanding that nothing anyone does is about you. So <clears throat> someone saying something off color uh, is probably not about me as much as it is about them. But um, 
you know, there's like a deep um, kind of unrelenting sadness around that, that um, is something I really had to work hard to get through in the book. And there was that scene where the, the last scene kind of toward the end when the, I saw her for the last time alive and said goodbye to her in the hospital, um, uh, you know, before I drove off to go to graduate school at Cornell. And I got nosebleeds from writing that chapter because I cried so much. <laughs> And I ended up sending a draft of it to my editor and was just like, okay, I am done and you can fix this if there's something wrong with it, but I can't, I can't continue to like go back over these same really painful memories. So um, yeah, a lot of pain, but also a lot of inspiration. And I hope anyone who else, anyone who can relate to that, I saw a couple comments there of people who had maybe lost siblings. Um, there's this, it's like a, a indescribable and unique kind of pain. Um, so, again, another, going back to your earlier question, I hope that some people who read the book might have, you know, been able to relate to that and found some level of hope. You, you spoke a little bit about just the challenges of, of writing, the amount of time it takes. Um, hopefully this, hopefully the, the challenge of this book won't scare you away from writing. Do you have any more <laughs> projects or books you're planning to write in the future? Oh, gosh, I just I spent the last eight hours today at my computer working on my next book. So, oh, wow, great. <laughs> I am definitely writing another book. I don't have the book deal yet. Um, that remains to be worked out with my agent and the publisher, but um, I have a pretty solid idea. I've started doing some research. Um, it's not gonna be a memoir. It's gonna be, I think, a story about, um, about wood. Um, I had this idea a while back that I wanted to trace the life story of a piece of wood, like a basic two by four from Home Depot that anyone can buy. And I wanted to like find its journey and like go back to the forest where it came from, where it was grown. Um, so I'm working with a couple major lumber um, companies in the US and Home Depot and Walmart to trace the origin of some of their wood-based products back to the forest. So, so I'm actually cool. tra uh, traveling quite a bit this summer um, flying around to these forests around the world, trying to mm. find like the 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 home sweet home of of wood <laughs> of so lumber. maybe will it have like a fiction base like a story around it with some truths about you know about wood or i think it might be a little bit no i think it's going to be non-fiction but it's going to okay. be more kind of like um uh you know that book omnivore's dilemma by michael pollan or those books called salt or cod by mark mm -hmm. lansky kind of like a little bit of history and like narrative nonfiction, like how did we get here? How, what's the history of wood and, and, um, and how do we get to this place we are now? But um, uh, yeah, it's like a wood discovery project. That's great, Karna. <laughs> but anyway, that's all like, a, just an idea at this point, I haven't written it. I'm, I'm, I mean, I've started writing it, mm -hmm. but I guess to answer your question more directly, it, writing the first one did take a lot out of me, it was exhausting, but I kind of, I'm feeling it again and I, and I want to continue writing and, um, and it's really challenging, but then like when you kind of get back into it, into the groove, it's exciting again. And, um, I've been reading a lot too. I mean, I, I always believe, and I teach these classes at Cornell too. I teach a writing course at Cornell and I tell my students that the best writers are the best readers. And, um, I have to be like a voracious reader of everything that's been written on a topic so that I know what hasn't been written so that I can kind of fill that void. Um, 
they call it finding your blue water. So if you're chumming the water for sharks and there's blood in the water, you want to like, and that's say that's the publishing sphere for every book written about wood. <laughs> um, you want to swim away and find where the blue clear water is. And that's where you want to write your book. So I'm looking for my blue water right now. That's great. That's great, Trent. Thanks for sharing with us a little bit about what you're doing at Cornell. Could you tell us a little more about um, what else you're working on in addition to your book and and also um, how you might be connected to Iowa State right now? Yeah. Um, so I came back to Iowa State last year a couple times and I spoke in the Student Innovation Center and I actually did like a day-long workshop with students to kind of build the structural frame of a canoe, which was great fun. And the Student Innovation Center is such an amazing building. I mean, like, wow, I wish we had that at Cornell, actually. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I it was great. I was hosted there. Uh, there was some folks there from the um, uh, Department of Industrial Design. You can see the students working on the canoe. Um, it was great fun. And we kind of did like a, um, you know, what's it called? Uh, when everyone shows up together the, and does everything all at once. I'm just blanking on the name of it, but we all worked on this canoe and now it's on display actually in the atrium at the Student Innovation Center. And I would love to come back and teach more there and maybe have, um, you know, a, a canoe class at Iowa State. We never quite got it off the ground yet, but there is interest there. Um, so what I'm teaching at Cornell, I'm professor of practice in the College of Business at Cornell. And I teach um, a few different courses related to sustainability, and we call them the grand challenges of the world. So um, uh, um, the, unit, the UN Sustainable Development Goals are um, something that we're really trying to educate our students about more. And so I teach about deforestation, climate change, um, sustainable agriculture. And then in one course, I actually have students building a canoe. Uh, we just wrapped it up last week. Um, and the students built a canoe, which we donated to um, the Haudenosaunee. There's oh, some great photos there. So the Haudenosaunee um, uh, peoples of upstate New York, uh, there's a summer youth program where they take uh, students and, and high schoolers paddling across the ancestral waterways of the Haudenosaunee people, which includes uh, five uh, nations, the Oneida Nation, um, Onondaga, Cayuga, Seneca, and Mohawk. And um, so it was really uh, that canoe, the students built that canoe, I'm so proud of them. Um, and, uh, but we worked with um, the indigenous peoples of upstate New York and next year we're gonna work with um, sort of a different group, uh, but still within the Haudenosaunee nation. And um, it's been so rewarding. And what I really also tried to challenge my students to think a lot about are issues of um, economic and racial inequity in outdoor recreation. So something no one really knows, and this is sort of the, the this follow-on from building this canoe and how it's the gift that keeps on giving, um, is that there have been quite a few studies that show that 97% of people who participate in outdoor recreation are white. And whether it's fishing, hunting, boating, canoeing, kayaking, camping, hiking, visitors to national parks, uh, the U.S. National Park Service actually did the research and the surveys and the studies and between between 95 and 97 percent of people who engage in outdoor activities are white and often rich white people. So I've been trying to um, 
use this class as a platform to help open people's eyes and my students' eyes to how they can use building a canoe as a tool for community economic development and as a tool for um, diversity and inclusion in the outdoors. So um, I challenged my students also to host an event called Canoe Fest in Ithaca, which was uh, Sunday, May 7th. We had about 550 people show up. You know, they promoted it in the local community, open paddling, free canoeing, you know, food trucks, games, all kinds of stuff. And with intentional outreach to marginalized communities, and we gave platform, we gave a voice to the Haudenosaunee people um, who gave a wonderful and, and moving history of indigenous people in upstate New York, including the, the genocide um, imparted on this, these poor people by George Washington's troops. Um, so there's some elders there from Onondaga Nation, and then they took it out on their maiden voyage. So I think the canoe can be like a crucible for so many things. It's this, um, you know, this vessel that can carry a lot of weight and not just the actual weight of people paddling it, but the weight of history and culture and tradition and, you know, basically humankind's ability to, um, to build things with their own hands and to use it to explore their surroundings. Yeah, that was, that was one of the cooler parts of reading your uh, listening to the book too was hearing about kind of that history of canoes and how it started in its most simple form and man has really like progressed how canoes have been built and you're like mm -hmm. if they could do it back then i can do this now <laughs> yeah right it's been done before and yes. you're not the first one right so just trust right. the process <laughs> yeah uh one more question from the chat and then we'll get to one more we had submitted um sue had a question about uh the your rodeo the rodeo parts of your youth any fond memories of rodeos that you wanted to share it sounds like you did share a few in the book but yeah oh, any gosh. that stand out i mean rodeo you know i went back to a rodeo last summer in south dakota it's just such a rough and tumble life and like i watched a guy break his foot on he fell off of a bowl and um I mean, my memories of it are all kind of being as a terrified young boy, basically. I'm just surrounded by these very dangerous animals and these kind of um, very macho guys, my dad and his friends. Um, but I do kind of love the sort of free spirit of it all. And, you know, uh, the way people can come together um, around an event is pretty extraordinary. You can be in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota and, um, you know, and if you put a corral together and have an entry fee and a prize and some prize money, people are gonna show up and jump on 2000 pound animals and risk their life to entertain the crowd. So I think rodeos are pretty extraordinary in that way and the way they bring people together. And that's how I see them now is it's a way for people to connect. And I would like to go to more rodeos than I do actually. I think that's so fascinating and kind of maybe like canoes. I don't know if it's a lost or dying uh, art because there's now a pro rodeo circuit and it's on ESPN and there's real money behind it. But, um, but it is certainly um, a link to the days of yore in this country. Yeah. Well, speaking of the days of yore, we have another question from the chat and this one is about your days um, at Iowa State. How do you view your time there um, while you were here on campus? Um, maybe any connections for how your time on campus equipped you for um, for life? Yeah, actually, I'm going to turn the light on real quick because I feel like the sun went down and I lost all my light and I'm still not very well lit. But anyway, um, 
Iowa State. I loved Iowa State. And, you know, coming from the ranch in South Dakota, like, um, you know, I never saw anyone who wasn't like me basically growing up. And uh, I saw very few people in general, but um, coming to Iowa State, it was like coming to the big city, <laughs> you know? It was so diverse and there were all these different people and types of people from all over the world that I never even knew existed. And so Iowa State was like my first, um, the time that I guess my eyes opened to the world. And I remember my parents, when they dropped me off, there's a scene in the book where my parents dropped me off at Iowa State. and. Um, um, but what I didn't tell about the, in the book was I lived in the top floor of one of those dorms that later got dynamited at the towers. And um, my roommate, his name was Evan and he was from a small town in Iowa. And I just like got in the door and he was like, put your stuff down, let's go. <laughs> and I didn't even know what was going on, but basically he, he took me to Jack Tri Stadium and we saw a concert with Hootie and the Blowfish and Blues Traveler. <laughs> And I was basically up like most of the night and <laughs> and I had I was in the marching band I played saxophone so we had marching band practice the next morning at 6am. So I didn't sleep so I went to this Hootie and the Blowfish concert and I went on Lincoln Way to the bars. I was, you know, I think I was 18 but anyway and then at 6am I dragged myself to marching band practice and I was like, wow. College is great. <laughs> <laughs> I had great fun. But oh, well, thank Jack you. Trice. <laughs> right. Well, thanks to Becky Stallman for that question from Ankeny, Iowa. Um, otherwise, we would have missed that great story. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Trent. Well, we uh, had uh, one more great question uh, from the comments, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. But Kelly wants to know, uh, forging your worlds of wine and woodworking, what wine pairs best with little and often? Oh, wow. Um, huh. Probably something that you can sip little and often <laughs> a little bit at a time. But um, Perfect. I've been enjoying Cabernet Francs lately. Our Cab Franc from Bedell Cellars is really, really good. And um, and it's not so heavy that it can't be enjoyed with food or alone. Um, a lot of Long Island wines and the wines from the East Coast of the U.S. are very light in style, lower alcohol, and I think more approachable than sometimes California wines can be kind of sweet and highly alcoholic and like 16 or 17% alcohol. So I like, um, I like our wines. They're more kind of easy style wine. Is that the one there? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Is that's that the wine there? You. Okay. Okay. Good. Cabernet Franc. You are right on top of it. There we yeah. go. That's Beautiful. it. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you had to, I had to drink a lot of wine to write that book too. And, um, <laughs> uh, gosh. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Trent. As we wrap up tonight, we, we just want to thank you. Um, I, I wish all of our, our guests could join us for a round of applause, but I know they are uh, applauding you tonight. So, so thanks again, Trent, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a total pleasure. And uh, it would do anything for Iowa State. It has a very sweet spot in my heart and kind of kickstarted my life in profound ways. And um, um, I owe a lot of gratitude to, to Iowa State and the people at Iowa State, including you and the folks in the, in the Alumni Association who have always been so generous to me and Jeff Johnson in inviting me back and including me in all kinds of events and, and ongoing things and efforts on campus. So. I'm always open to travel. Let me know if you want me to come back at any time. And now I'm a professor at Cornell, so 
I actually, it's like in my job description to go speak at universities. So there we go. I have good reasons for you to come back. Great. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing you back here soon, Trent. Thanks again. Have a great night, everyone. Take care. Thank you.